to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's 12 o'clock. We've got a lot to get through, so let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to another Manna Bible study. If you want to turn in your Bible, we're going to pick up in chapter 9. And let's, let's pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us. Because you didn't have to. You didn't have to... Um, associate with people as evil as we are. And yet, God, you are more uh, gracious than we could ever imagine or ever deserve, and you have spoken to us when all we wanted was to be far away from you. You have revealed yourself to us, and in revealing yourself to us, you have revealed to us your plan to fix this brokenness in this world. So, God, I pray that as we open up your word and, and we remember that this is you revealing yourself to us, just like you did to Noah, just like you did to Abraham, that you are revealing to us your plan for salvation for those who have faith. So, God, I pray that through this revealing of yourself, we would have faith. I pray that you would help the words of my mouth be words that speak truly about what you've revealed about yourself. And I pray that the meditations of our hearts would, would be meditations of faith. And that we would all be saved and encouraged and given hope in the, the plan that you have to bring everything back into perfect order in Jesus Christ, who is uh, the true image of God made flesh for our salvation. So it's in his name that we pray and it's in his name that we give this time. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, we are picking up in chapter 9, which is uh, the kind of continuation of the Noah story. So, last week, what we talked about was the, the span of chapter Genesis chapter 4, all the way up to Noah going on to the ark, and then uh, Noah, I, th- I think, did we get to Noah coming out of the ark? Did we get, get quite that far? What that space covered, and as I said, is really just a continuation of everything that happened in chapter 3. So chapter 3 was the fall into sin, when mankind decided that they knew better than God did, so they wanted to be like God. They knew better than God did what would uh, be best to, to bring order to the world, what would be the best way for them to um, accomplish what they thought was important. And what we saw was that fall into sin, that disobedience brought so much disorder that from chapter 4 all the way to like chapter 6, all that happened was more violence, more sexuality, more evil spread throughout the whole earth and everything was just terrible. Okay, This corruption that came from sin was ruining Everything And God looked at mankind and he said that the intentions of their heart is on evil continually. So this good creation that God had made was being so terribly corrupted by evil that these men that he had made to bear his image were doing anything but. That everything about them was evil all the time. And so God says, I am, I am going to, in my justice, wipe all of that out. There is, there, there is no room for evil in my plan for an ordered universe. And these are the guys that are screwing it up because of their sin, because of their intentions and their hearts. They're screwing it up. And so God in His justice says, that's it, I'm done. I am going to remove them. I'm going to wipe them out so that they will stop 
carrying out all of this evil and violence in my creation. But I'm going to show favor to this one family. Did God have to show favor to that one family? No. And as we saw, the, and as we're going to see today, that one family is not a perfect family. That one family is, is also evil in their intentions. But God, in his love and grace, said, I'm going to show favor to this one family. And we also saw that that favor um, was, was worked out in that one family having faith in God, that they were righteous and blameless in that generation. Again, not perfect, but they had faith. They walked with God. And so in this relationship of faith that God had with this one family, he says, except for Noah's family, everyone else will die. But I'm going to save Noah's family. And that was an act of love. If God had just saved Noah's family and then all that was left on the earth was Noah's family, we would have to say that God is a gracious God because they didn't deserve that. But then God's grace continues because God didn't just save Noah's family to save Noah's family, but God saved Noah's family to carry out a bigger plan, a bigger purpose that he had that is going to go through Noah and continue on into which we will all be the recipients. So we have seen the effects of sin and the, the severity of God's wrath and justice towards sin. But we also just started with this little seed of faith and God's plan to work through this family that he has chosen to fix what was wrong with the world. And I think that's so because God could have just said, well, never mind and thrown it all away. And he would have been right to do that. But instead... We see God saying, no, I've got a plan because this is a good creation and I want to save it and I want to fix it. And I want there to be a mankind, a human race that loves me, that has faith in me, and that glorifies me, and that we can all enjoy this thing again. And so he's starting a plan to fix it. And the rest of the Bible really is just this plan of fixing what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. And so we get with Noah... Remember uh, what we said that, that uh, and I, I just, I think this is so cool, that this ark that Noah was on, okay, this, this boat, we think of it as a boat, that's not the best way to, like you see it in your head, you know, you see the pictures and they have like the, and it looks like a boat, doesn't it? When they show the pictures of Noah's ark, it's got like the rounded prow and it's, when you look at the dimensions, it, it doesn't, it's not called a boat, what's it called? An ark. You know how else you can translate that? Box. And you look at the dimensions, this is a rectangular prism. There is nothing about this that looks like a boat. It's a big box. And you know another way that you can, you know another way that word is translated? Casket. Now that's deep, huh? You think about that? They entered into the casket. Okay? They, we enter in by faith into Christ's death. And then we come out of the casket. We come out of... Christ's death, we are resurrected by faith into a new kind of life, into a new creation. Anybody else getting chills? And so what we see here in this part is them coming out of the box and stepping into a new creation with all of these animals that God is going to um, bless and they're also going to be multiplied. So we see in Noah a new Adam. He's like the next Adam in the line. Okay, And he is going to be given the same task that Adam was given. And, and he's going to try and, and do what Adam failed to do. Okay, so that's where we're starting in today. So we'll just pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's what God said to Adam, isn't it? So he's the next Adam. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all of the fish 
of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So this is different, a little different than Adam. We saw before when God made Adam that he gave mankind dominion over all of the creatures of the earth, that they were to subdue them and that they were to rule over them and love and they were to steward them. But now we see that mankind's dominion over the animals will no longer be this perfect harmonious stewardship, but now it is a dominion of fear. Whereas before, you remember when God brought all the animals to Adam and Adam just got to name all of them and he got to hang out with all the animals? Now the animals run away from mankind. Now the animals live in fear and dread. And whereas before, in the garden, all they needed to do was eat the the plants, now mankind eats the animals. So a lot of people think before this time, the plan was not for mankind to eat animals. Now does that mean that you shouldn't eat animals? No, because God is saying, this is the new order. There is a new system. What we're going to see is, this is God creating a new, what we're going to call covenants. We're going to see that word covenant come up. And what a covenant is, is a term of a relationship, a kind of relationship. We're going to talk about that more, but God is saying things work differently now. This is a new age, and that extends not just to the way that mankind treats the animals, but the way mankind eats, or uh, doesn't eat each other, the way mankind treats each other. <laughs> Almost screwed up. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. Look at verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. So that is, if someone takes your life, I will require a reckoning for it. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. If you remember the chapters leading up to this, the consistent theme that ran from chapter, you know, from Cain killing Abel to Lamech, the great-great-grandson of Cain, saying, I'll kill somebody for just looking at me the wrong way, for this spreading continual violence. That's one of the things that God says he's wiping the earth out for is because of their violence. Okay, that there was violence being enacted, and so God is establishing a new relationship, a new covenant, and new terms of existence with Noah that introduces the death penalty. So it says, if anyone kills a man, they will be killed, beast or man. And what that is, is the introduction of what a lot of people say, this is the introduction of government. So what Adam and Eve had was a system that was built on harmony. You didn't need government. You didn't need laws to govern the way that you protected each other because there was just perfect peace. And when that perfect peace was taken away, when mankind tried to disorder the universe by um, walking according to their definition of good and evil rather than God's definition of good and evil, what happened was violence. And so God is prohibiting that violence from spreading the way that he did. And the way that he's doing that is with the death penalty. There is now this threat of a a man-made retribution for if you kill somebody else. So this is meant to be a curb on violence. Do you get that? But isn't that sad that we need that in the first place? So it says, uh, this is how far we've come, and yet the introduction of a new law, the introduction of a new system, curbs sin, and is a means, it's like a step back to restoration. You get that? So, verse 7, and you, uh, Noah and your family, all of you guys, be fruitful and multiply. 
increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds of the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is what is called the Noahic covenant. Okay? And a covenant, what a covenant is, is um, this is going to be crucially important, not just in this section, but through the rest of the Bible. A covenant is an agreement of relationship. And it works differently than a contract. Because what a contract is, is I will do this for you, and you will do this for me. And as long as you uphold your end of the bargain, and I uphold my end of the bargain, we will have an arrangement, we will have an agreement. Covenant is kind of different, because is there anything that mankind can do to God? Is there any, and is, is there any end of the obligation that we can uphold with God? No. But God is establishing terms of a relationship here. What, what's he doing? So this is cool. God, you're going to learn a lot more about covenants as you continue to study the Bible. But God did not invent covenants. Okay, God did in the fact that he invented everything. But covenants are not something that God is introducing into mankind at this moment. Covenants were something that have existed as long as um, mankind has been around. And it was very common practice in the ancient Near East, this idea of covenants. It was a way that people, it's basically people making promises to each other to build relationships. It's always relational. It's not an exchange of goods and services. A lot of times it would happen when two families would get married and would come together. They would create covenants and they would, they would promise to take care of each other. It was, it was sort of a loyalty thing, right? Like because we are family now, I promise I'm going to take care of you and you promise that you're going to take care of me because that's how it works. This is a covenant. But the most common way that a covenant happened in the time and the culture that this existed in was a covenant between a king and the people that he was ruling over. Now, does the king have to make promises to the people that he's ruling over? No. A king could be a tyrant. A king could be just a horrible person and just conquer them and force them to do all the things that he says to do. But instead, what kings would do out of uh, love and probably just wisdom is that they would say, this is how I'm going to treat you as a king because I want to be a good king. And then in that, there would also be terms that says, and now this is how you will respond to me as your king, as the, the people that I'm ruling over. And so this was all a very common structure at that time. And so what's so cool is God knows that just like today, um, I could come to, to you guys and you have a framework for, let me think of an example. Um, this is stupid, but you have a framework for how relationship status on Facebook works. And so if I was going to try and communicate with you, I could start using language like saying, hey, our relationship, it's complicated. 
And you would know because this is cultural language that we have shared in common. And so I can use that as a means of communicating. That's how language works. Do you get that? God is coming to Noah knowing that Noah has in his mind this idea of a, of a covenant. And God is going to say, hey, Noah, our relationship that we have, it's a covenant. And here's how this covenant works. Okay? I am going to make promises to you as your king. This is how I'm going to treat you. As your Lord, as your God, never again am I going to flood the earth. That's the promise that I'm making you. And I'm giving you um, this, this new system, these new laws where you're supposed to govern one another and care for the animals and it's going to look like this now, but, but this is the promise that I'm never again going to flood the earth. And one of the other important things about covenants is that covenants always come with signs. Okay? There's always some sign. We're going to see that when we get to Abraham. There is a, a symbol or some seal so that there will be reminders. Sometimes they would build like a big tower of rocks, and that would be sort of the sign of the covenant. Or there would be some ceremony that they go through, usually a sacrifice that they would go through, and it would be a sign, a, a memorial, a symbol of that covenant. Well, what's the sign that God is saying with this covenant that he's going to have with Noah? He says, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds. And some of you guys know this because you remember the, just the story of Noah. Um, what's the bow in the clouds? A rainbow. A rainbow, right? So God is saying, here's the covenant, or here's the sign of this covenant. I'm going to put a rainbow in the clouds. And I, the, the language that it's using is literally a bow, like a bow and arrow. Which you can see that a rainbow looks like a bow and arrow, doesn't it? And when God says, I'm putting my bow in the clouds, what it's saying is he is he's putting it up. So what is what is a bow and arrow? I know some some of you guys it's like just a fun hobby that you have, but what at this time what would a bow and arrow be? A weapon. A weapon. Now do you see that God was sort of using a weapon against the earth when he flooded the earth? Okay. Because of their evil, they were at war. And that's a way that you can think about sin. Sin sets us at war with God. And so God took up his weapon and vanquished this evil army that was opposed to God. But God says, the, co- the sign of this covenant that I'm making with Noah is I'm taking my weapon and I'm putting it up. And then if you think about that being a weapon, and you guys know how a bow and arrow works, right? If this was a bow and arrow, where would it be aiming? Up. Who's up? God. So even in this, we see God saying, you know what? I'm no longer aiming my weapon at you, but I'm aiming it at myself. This is a little glimpse of that covenant relationship that we have, okay? Which is going to be a covenant that's going to be expanded and built upon. There is going to be a succession of covenants that come after this, but the greatest covenant is the new covenant. You guys have heard of the new covenant? Jesus, when he's sitting in the room with his disciples, he, he takes a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. This is the ultimate terms of the covenant that God is going to have with mankind. That our king is going to have with us. That ultimately our peace and our relationship isn't going to come by me exercising any kind of violence against you. But it is going to come at me taking the wound on myself. This is the ultimate covenant. is a covenant in God spilling his own blood for his people. Isn't that awesome? So this is the relationship that God has with Noah. Never again am I going to flood the earth. You are a new Adam. Go out and be fruitful. This is the nature of our relationship. So if Noah is the new Adam, 
this would, if, 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 and again, we know a lot more about the Bible. Even if you've never read the Bible, you probably have more in your mind about the Bible than uh, the Israelites had when they were first reading this. And so we kind of take the tension out of the story sometimes. But we need to read the tension back into this. So imagine you don't know anything else and you have seen this event happen, this horrible, horrible flood happen. And then Noah and his family come out of the ark and then God starts using the same language that he's using in Genesis 1. And you're going you're to start getting excited for Noah. You're like, okay, here he comes, new Adam. And we already said Noah is righteous, Noah is blameless. Okay, maybe this is, this is going to be it. Maybe Noah's gonna, maybe Noah's going to make it where Adam failed. And then we get to chapter 18, or verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's going to be important in a minute. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Do you remember what Adam's job was supposed to be in the garden? A gardener. Look at Noah. All right, new Adam, let's go. So he plants a vineyard, verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So how did this Adam do? Not too. Not too well. These guys cannot handle fruit. <laughs> okay? It always leads to, uh, leads to a problem. So Adam, or, uh, the new Adam, Noah, becomes drunk. He lays uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, so this is Ham, Noah's son, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we don't know what that means. I'm really inclined, when you look at the way um, that nakedness is used in the rest of the Bible. And again, you even bring up, you remember Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame and then... They sinned and then they felt shame. Again, there's this theme of nakedness coming up. You see the parallels to Genesis 2 and 3. Um, the way that nakedness is used by Moses through the rest of the uh, Pentateuch, those five books of, the first five books of the Bible, is in a sexual sense. Okay? I don't know what that means. We don't get much more, but the response to this sounds like something really bad happened. I don't know what happened, but something bad. So again, we see that sexual immorality. and that. So maybe it was just he was looking... And there was something weird about that, or you know, there's all kinds of theories about that. I think it's more than he just played a funny joke on pop. I think it's something really, really serious, and and really, you know, really just gross. Okay, evil. So for all the hope that we had in this new Adam and a new order, we still see Noah screwing up, Noah's descendants screwing up. Okay, the the result, the evil that's in our heart is still there, even if there's this new covenant of hope that we have. So. Um, then, verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Stop right there. Um, this is the first time that mankind utters a curse. So we've seen God uttering curses in chapter 3. Again, you see the parallels to the, the 1, 2, and 3, and now here. But instead of God being the one that's uttering curses, now it's Noah uttering curses. But God is, um, I think, using Noah kind of like a prophet. Okay, And so the, the curses and the blessings that Noah speaks out are honored by God. Like They, are, they're, they stick. They're legit. Okay, And so Noah curses not Ham, but Ham's youngest son, Canaan. 
And if you're familiar with the Bible, you're going to know that Canaan becomes a whole nation of the Canaanites who are at odds with the people of God. So Noah is cursing Canaan. And so it's important for us to think that these, these people, we saw, the, we saw the verse before. Um, you know, I'm not going to draw it, it doesn't matter. We, we, we saw the verses before where it says, The sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth are whom the whole earth was populated by. We're going to see that in a minute. This is what those three sons, it's actually pretty cool. When we're going to look, what it says is Japheth went up into um, Asia Minor and into Europe. So if they're kind of like in um, the Middle East, okay, Japheth went up into Europe. Ham went down into uh, the Middle East and into Africa. And then Shem went into, stayed in the majority of the Middle East and over into Asia. And from these people, they had sons, and those sons went. And from these people, we are to um, see all of the nations of the earth being dis, uh, dispersed from. And this nation, Canaan, is cursed by God, by Noah. Okay. Now, these other sons, Shem and Japheth, God is gonna, Noah is going to now bless them. So in verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let them or let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah is pronouncing these curses that are going to have effects on the interactions of whole nations and whole descendants of people. That's kind of what's happening. So as they are dispersing and filling the earth, there's conflict, but then there's also blessing. And so there's this distinction between some people that have these certain purposes and then God and his um, sovereign plan through his prophet Noah are deciding other purposes for other people. So let me, let me just bring it back down. Has anybody ever heard the word anti-Semitism? What is anti-Semitism? anti-Semitism? Yeah, yeah, some sort of animosity towards Jewish people. You know where that word Semitism comes from? Shem. Okay, so anti-Semitism is anti-Shemitism. And so we can reverse engineer that and see that from Shem come the Jewish people. And Noah is blessing Shem. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. Okay, and then it goes, and may God enlarge Japheth. So it's not as good a blessing for Japheth as Shem gets. But then this is really cool. Okay, and this is, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. If you know how pronouns work, okay, that word him is a pronoun. Pronouns always have an antecedent. So what is that him referring to? If you're going to read this, there's two people that I could refer to. I wish it could be both of them but it can't be. It could either be referring to Japheth, so let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. So if you were to un- unpack all of that history of the nations going out, Japheth would be non-Jewish people, also known as Gentiles. And, it, and Noah is pronouncing this blessing that says, let Japheth come back to dwell in the tents of Shem. That could be referring to in the New Testament when the gospel opens up and the Gentiles get to come and dwell with Israel, with, with the Semites, with the Jews. Um, but I actually don't think what that is. I think actually that him is talking about God. So may God enlarge Japheth and let God dwell in the tents of Shem. So you see all the blessings that are being pronounced to Shem? Shem is the line that we're going to continue with. And Noah is saying, you know what? You know what God is going to do is his way of blessing Shem? God is going to dwell in their tents. 
And if you know what happens in the, at the end of the book of Exodus, you know what happens in Leviticus and what happens throughout the rest of the history of the Israelite people, they build a tent that is their temple, and God dwells in that tent with them. Pretty cool, I think. But we, we get this vision for national purposes now being carried out, and God having a elective, just like he chose Noah of all the families of the earth, now God is going to choose certain nations, and particularly a nation, to work through but again that's not just his grace for that one nation but a plan to carry these things out so look at chapter um or sorry the end of chapter nine after the flood noah lived 350 years all of the days of noah were 950 years and he died so chapter 10 these are the generations of the sons of noah shem ham and japheth so this is how they split up and we're not going to read all of this but i want to just get you the kind of the, the vein of the first one the sons of japheth Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephah. Okay, so you see what happens? He's going to just go through line by line by line all of these sons and the sons that they had and the sons that they had. But when you look at these, like look at the um, verse 6. The sons of Ham, okay, so these are the, the, Ham was the son that went down into Africa. And what do we, what do we see? Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, or Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtica, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan, and Cush fathered Nimrod. He was one of the first to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and then the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria. He built Nineveh. Okay, look at verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his father Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites. What I want you to be hearing in this first and first of all is that these are real places. Do you see Egypt? Egypt was one of the sons of Ham. So these are nations that we're talking about. These are real people. These are real places. Did you see Babel from Nimrod? But one of the other things that I want you to see is like if you look at verse 5. It says, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. Again, you look at verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans and their languages, their lands and their nations. Then he goes through Shem, to Shem also, in verse 21, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. You know where we get the word Hebrew from? Probably from Eber. So these are the Hebrew people descended from Shem, which ultimately become the Jewish people. Okay, um, Asher, Arpisalud, and Aram, on and on and on down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. But... That was not the way that it was supposed to be. All of these different nations with different languages, with strife between them, with some being blessed by God and some being cursed by God and some conquering and some being submissive to. That wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. When God made Adam, all mankind, we were supposed to be one family with one language. And actually, that is sort of how it was at first when everything came out. But is that how it feels today? We got, one, we got one nation, one big family, one language, and everybody's happy-go-lucky and getting along. No. Okay, you just have to watch the news, and you say, yeah, something went wrong somewhere. And we know that that's the effects of sin working out. This is um, 
the corruption of that plan that God had as we spread throughout the earth. But actually, we get a more specific. So chapter 11 is telling us really where all these nations came from. So look at chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, like it was supposed to. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And so they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. So remember, we said that this is sort of a theme that runs through the book of Genesis 2, is what people do when they get into cities. The plan all along was for Adam and Eve to build cities, to cultivate and to go out and to create culture. And cities, we said, are places where innovation happens. That's what we see right here. So that all of the people had one language and they came together and they made the city and they started creating bricks. That's a big deal. And you're like, okay, whatever, bricks. But at that time, before, what they used to make buildings out of was like stones that they just found, you know? And they would kind of, but, but now they've come up with this new invention, bricks. And you can do a lot with bricks, can't you? Okay? Bricks, it was kind of like they just opened up the world of possibilities. And so they see all that they can accomplish. And yet remember what we said was God's plan for Adam was for them to go out and accomplish and innovate and create culture for who? For the glory of God. That was the plan, was to create a city for God. But look at what they do. So they've got these bricks and they get this gleam in their eye and they're like, we can do anything. And what do they do? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's the evil in their heart. This is what they want to do with their culture. So the tower that they build is probably, you know what a ziggurat is? It's kind of like a weird pyramid thing with like steps that goes up. That's kind of what they were thinking, okay? Is we're going we're gonna to build this tower, and its top is going to go all the way to the heavens, which is fairly arrogant, you know? But you can see, like, man, imagine you had unlimited Lego bricks. I would try, okay? But they're like, we're going to build a brick, we're, we're going to build a tower that go all the way up to the heavens. But if you remember that theme already of mankind trying to make themselves like God, this is sort of that heart. We don't need to get into heaven on God's terms. We can make ourselves like God and get into heaven. But actually also, what the, the whole point that they would make ziggurats for is ziggurats went up into the heavens. So it was almost like, and again, this is just how ancient people thought about things, is that if we were at a higher point, this is why they would worship on mountains a lot of times too, if we were at a higher point, we were closer to God, God would have an easier time getting to us. And so they're, they're thinking that by building this tower, they can have a relationship with God. So there's an element of worship into the, in this, okay? That they're building this tower to have a relationship with God, but why do they want the relationship with God? For God? No, for their own name. So I think in one way, they're like, man, everybody, you know, is going to look at our tower and we're just going to think we're all awesome. But also, they want to have this relationship with God because they want to be blessed by God. And they want God to make their name great. So they're trying to, which is what all religion does, apart from the religion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All religion is really just a way of trying to um, twist God's arm into doing something for you. And so they're like, we're going to build this tower and then God will have to make our name great through all the earth. You kind of get that idea? So that's what they want. How do you think God feels about that? Okay, that is, that is the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. And now it's just all mankind doing it. And so I love verse 5. So it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. 
So here's mankind, and they've got these bricks, and they're like, we're going to make this tower, and it's going to be so awesome. And then the language that he uses is like, God looks down on this itty-bitty little city, and he comes down to it. Okay, so it, you know, it's like for all mankind, it thinks that they really are. And maybe you should, you know, maybe that's good for just a healthy dose of perspective for all of us. All of these things that you think are so important, or all of these accomplishments that you're so caught up in, all of these things where you're, look, why do a lot of us come to school? We want to make a name for ourselves. I know that's what I was hoping for. But then you think of the perspective of God when he looks down on our plans. Not that they're bad plans, but they're not huge plans. Not compared to God. And when your huge plans and your own heart are really set on your own glory, and God looks down on it, that really, you know, that, that, that's some good perspective. So God looks down, came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose, propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. Babel means confusion. confusion. But really this, this is more than just a funny story. This is a great tragedy. Okay, Where mankind was supposed to be one family. Now because of their pride and their glory stealing, they have been confused. We have been set against each other. All war, all disagreement, everything, all of these problems that we see in the news, all of this stems back to Babel. And the fact that mankind cannot accomplish greater things all comes back to Babel. And so when you get to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes and enters into these followers of Jesus, these ones who have entered into a relationship with God into the new covenant by faith, and the Holy Spirit comes into them, what do they start doing? They start talking in such a way that people of all kinds of different languages can understand them. And in that moment, it's like what happened at the Tower of Babel got reversed in the church. Okay? Through the Holy Spirit. And more so, the theme, like if you read in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, or in chapter 2, the plan that God has in the church is that out of all of these separate nations, God is making one nation again, the nation of faith in Christ. And so he says, no matter all the division that exists from all of the nations outside of the church, as soon as you enter into this family, the church, there is no more division. Babel is over. And so even if language is an issue, language will not be an issue because you are all united in one family in Christ. So the church, right now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are in this family that God is planning on using to make this one family again. And in the end, when God finishes everything, you know what's going to be left? One family again. And we're it, the church. Okay? And all of those that have entered into the ark, have entered into faith in Christ. I think that's really cool. That the church, the promise of the gospel is the reversal of Babel. But right now, we exist in a time where the church is a family, yeah, but there's still a lot of babbling, isn't there? And I looked, those words are not related. Can you believe that? Like the way that we say babbling is not related to the word babble at all. I know, like missed opportunity right there. But actually, they think the reason that it's stuck, babble is a Greek word, sorry, this is, babble is a Greek word that sounds like how babies talk. 
and that's where the word Babel came from. But people think it's stuck because it sounds like Babel. So it kind of, but they're not etymologically related at all. That was for free. I'm going to get back to the point. Um, so we've seen the dispersion of all of these families. And all of these families are separated and at odds and confused and can no longer work together. And now we're going to zoom in. So this is, this is how it keeps on working. God kind of sets the stage, tells a broad story, then he zooms in on one, zooms in on one, zooms in on one. We see all those times that he's zooming in, that he's zooming in on people that he's chosen by his own good sovereign purposes. And so we zoom in on chapter, or verse 10, and we zoom in on Shem. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arphaxad, Two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arphaxad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Goes on to Eber, to, or to Shela, to Eber, to Peleg, to Reu, to Serug, to Nahor, and Nahor fathered Terah. And Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So we see now that we're going we're gonna to zoom in again. So we've seen this generation, we've showed up to this next point. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So this is where Terah's family lives, in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is in southeastern uh, Mesopotamia. As if you know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, they kind of make a, a fertile crescent. And then when they come back together on the other side, it's down. That's where Ur of the Chaldeans is. Okay, So they are... Kind of over, it's what modern-day Iraq. Um, in Ur of the Chaldeans, there's all this archaeological research that we've seen is actually known as a, a center for the cultic worship of a moon goddess. So these people in Ur are not worshiping Yahweh, the creator god of the universe. They're worshiping moon goddesses, or a moon goddess, okay? And so we're zooming in on a family that has settled in this place that worships moon goddesses. Verse 29, And Abram and Nahor, these other sons of Terah, took wives... And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And now Sarai was barren. She had no children. So if you've kept up with the flow of thought so far, we just got this whole genealogy where so-and-so had a kid, and so-and-so had a kid, and so-and-so had a kid, and they had all these sons and daughters, and there's all this fruitfulness and multiplying all of a sudden. And then you get to Abram, and Abram has a wife, and they have no children. It's like a big punctuation point on this narrative. Okay? So we, were, we thought we were tracking with this family, Hashem. And then we get to Abram, and Abram has no child. Verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran. So that's Abram's nephew is Lot. His grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So I think it's kind of interesting. Abram's family decides to move from Ur to Canaan, the guy that was just cursed by Noah. Okay, Canaan, which is, is modern-day uh, Israel-Palestine, okay? what will later be called the Promised Land. They, they get this idea in their head, I don't know why, that they're going to move to Canaan, but then they get about halfway and they stop. And so they're just kind of settled. Now, the book of Joshua tells us that Abram's family worships other gods and goddesses. So keep that in mind. Abram doesn't know, probably does not know Yahweh, the God of the universe. Okay? This is as everybody's spread out, they have gotten farther and farther away from the truth of the, the God that made everything. And so we don't know what Abram thinks. 
but we know that he's probably not aware of Yahweh, and yet Yahweh's about to start talking to Abram. What would that be like? Okay, you have no, you know, concept for these things. I'm sure that whole time that Abram is worshiping these other gods and goddesses, none of them ever talk to him. But then all of a sudden, a god is going to start talking to Abram. Look at chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, just stop. the Lord, Abram's like, what is happening? But the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pretty cool. So this God shows up out of nowhere, the God that made heavens and the earth. Only Abram doesn't know that yet. And he starts talking to Abram. And what he tells Abram to do is kind of a... a, a theme that's going to run that Abram gives or God gives Abram a command an imperative he says go go into this land that I will show you okay and it's not that's not an easy thing to ask right like how many of you guys moved more than an hour away to come to UNT that was difficult okay you have a car and Facebook and cell phones to ask somebody to move is a big deal at this time, and more so to ask him to move away from his father and his mother, okay, to move away from those lands, into a land that I'm just going to show you? What land? Well, I'm going to show you. There's no plan laid out. There's no guarantees. There's none of that. Okay, it's just this God says, go from this land to the land that I'll show you, but then look what he says. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Do you remember what the people wanted when they built the Tower of Babel? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to coerce God into blessing them. Okay, And God said, no, not happening. I'm, I'm going to send you out instead. Okay, You're going to get the exact opposite of what you wanted and your name is going to be divided and scattered throughout all the earth. And then not because Abram had any great schemes to get God to bless him at all, but because God just chose Abram and came out of nowhere and said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Believe in me, and I'm going to make your name great. Abram wasn't looking for it. Abram wasn't trying to coerce God into it. That was just God's grace revealing himself to Abram. Did God have to reveal himself to Abram? No. Abram was worshiping false gods. That's, that's kind of the gospel, guys. We don't coerce God into blessing us. We don't do certain things, and then God blesses us. Okay? We, don't, we, don't, we can't manufacture God coming to us. Okay? God comes to us of his own free will. And God reveals himself to us out of his just sovereign grace and love for us. And so God reveals himself to Abram and and he says, Hey, look, I do want you to have faith. But it's not faith disconnected from a promise. That's the other thing that I want to show you. Okay, so it says, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So what we see is um, this kind of structure that they say is God gives Abram a divine imperative and a promise and then leaves the opportunity for a response. So he says, here's what, I'm, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I will give you. Here's the blessing that I will give you. All you have to do is respond. That's different from God giving a divine imperative 
then waiting for a response, and then giving the blessing. And that's going to be kind of important. So God puts all of his cards out on the table ahead of time. And what that's trying to say is it's not based on Abram's works that he's going to be blessed. God is giving him the blessing up front and saying this blessing is just in response to faith. You get that? Okay. So this is what God says. Believe in me. Trust me. I'm going to give you a blessing, but you have to go. What would you do? (laughs) This God that you've never heard of starts talking to you somehow and says, I want you to leave everything that you've ever known. And I want you to act in faith from me. But I promise that life in, walked in faith with me is better than the life that you have right now. Does that sound like the gospel to anybody? If anyone will seek to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. Isn't that what Jesus is asking us to do? But Jesus puts all of his cards out on the table too. Okay? And it's not in response to work. He's just, hey, just, this is here. But you just have to come with me. Just walk with me instead of walking on your own way. So this is a reversal of the Garden of Eden. This is an act of faith. But what's also cool is it's not a blessing that stops at Abram. It says, I will bless you. And in you, you will be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. So all of those nations that just came out of the Tower of Babel, all of those nations that dispersed and spread all over, all of those nations that are in need more so than ever of rescue and salvation and restoration, God says, I've chosen this one man, and I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to make you a great nation, and in you nation, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And how are they going to be blessed? Because they are going to see the same faith that this nation has. They will know that God by their faith. And they will be blessed by the same God. So this nation is going to be, this is another Adam. Do you see that? This is another image-bearing nation that is going to testify to the glory of God. And in their testifying to the glory of God, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we know one way that they're going to be blessed is that Jesus Christ came from this line. The line of Abraham. And so if this line, if this genetic line hadn't existed, then Jesus wouldn't have been able to come and bless the whole earth. But you know another way that it's blessed? Okay. And I, I think this is cool. The way that the New Testament talks about Abraham is that... You, ever, you guys remember seeing that song in Sunday school? If you grew up in Sunday school, the Father Abraham song? Father Abraham, many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. I'm not going to go there. But um, that's, that's that song. I am a son of Abraham. Okay. Well, if you want to be a son of Abraham, that means that you have to be a Shemite. It means you have to be a Jewish. And I don't... Anybody in here Jewish? Okay, then none of us are genetically sons of Abraham. But all of us, if we have by faith entered into Christ, okay, we are united with Christ, and Christ is the son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. If all of us are united to Christ in that one nation family, then that means that we're all sons of Abraham. And so that means that not only is the whole world blessed through Christ, but the whole world is blessed through us, the sons of Abraham. We are the blessing to the whole earth. How? Because we're going to tell everybody about the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Pretty cool, huh? Can you believe that? We're not even in chapter 13 of Genesis, and we're already seeing all of our purposes in the gospel lived out in in Abraham. I think it's pretty cool. We're never going to finish this. Verse 4. So God has given Abraham this imperative. What's he going to do? Abram went. Faith. There it is. And that's just great. What What reason did he have to believe God? Probably because he was actually talking to him. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, his, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to, get the, to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent, and with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So they've come into the promised land, into the land Israel, Palestine, uh, the land of Canaan, and God has made these promises to Abram. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you offspring, and the offspring will be a great nation, and they will take possession of this land that I will show them. And in you, you will be blessed, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those are big promises, okay? But there are some problems with that plan, and this is more of that tension. Because you remember all the way we went back? What did it say? What was the thing that the Bible said about Abram's wife, Sarai? She, was, she had no children. She was barren. And Abram's 75. And somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Sarah is 10, 10 years behind Abram. So she's 65. Okay? Anybody seen any grandmas having babies? You know, you know how it works, right? Like you can only have babies for so long. That ship has sailed. Abram and Sarai. I mean, that's, I mean, that's hard news for anybody. In this culture, that's especially hard news because really for them at this point, that was sort of like all they had was the hope of their descendants. And they didn't have any. But now God is saying, you're going to have offspring and those offspring are going to become a great nation. you got to think, at some point, Abram's like, how's that working? But then the other thing is, I'm going to give you this land, but then they move into the land and who's in the land? The cursed Canaanites. And God's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you lots of children, and I'm going to give you this land. And he's like, my wife's barren, and there's Canaanites in my land. And so it kind of raises, is this God crazy? He's making all these promises. Can he uphold those promises? And so there is this testing of Abram's faith. God has made these promises, and it looks like they're not going to come true. Now, God makes a lot more promises in this. He's given us a lot of promises in Jesus Christ. But the immediate fulfillment of those promises is, is never certain, is it? And so maybe some of you are sitting here right now, and you're like, man, I, I know I'm supposed to trust God, but it seems like my circumstances are calling into question God's faithfulness. That's really what they are. And these are tests for you. And I like using that word test. And it's a word that God's actually going to use when he talks about Abraham. Because it's, it's test. It's not like, um, like taking an exam. And either you pass or you fail. But it's the word testing in the sense of the way that you test a metal. Which is you, you subject it to very, very painful. I mean, if metals could feel pain. You subject it to very painful situations. You stick it in fire. You stick it in cold water. You hit it with a hammer. And you are checking to see its... its um, what, it, what its composure, what it's made of, if it's solid, if it's strong. But what you're also doing is in testing it, you're making it stronger. So if you're in here and you're in a situation like Abraham is, where, yeah, God has made these promises that Jesus says, I came that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. And you feel like, my life does not feel very abundant right now. Jesus says, I came that you would have 
peace, peace that surpasses understanding. You're saying, I don't feel very peaceful right now. You God saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never let you go hungry. I will always provide for you. And you're saying, I don't feel very provided for right now. That's the situation that Abram was in. It is in. And that is God testing your faith. So he's not giving you a pass-fail exam, but he's making your faith stronger through that. So if anything, it doesn't mean that he's abandoned you. It means he's very close to you. Does that make sense? And that's kind of the situation that Abram's in. I think you guys are done. I'm not going to give you any more today. Okay, this is really thick stuff. But this is where we're going to leave Abram off. In a situation where he is being tested in his faith. But friends, I just want to, let's just sit and think on that for a minute. Okay, that we know so much more about God than Abram does. We know how faithful God is and will be. And we can even look back at that story of Noah. That God preserves and God gives life to those that walk with God. So friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, this is, this is that invitation for you to come and to put your faith in this God. And to be blessed. To, be, to join this nation that God has made in this new family, this new creation, and be blessed. And if you are in that, then trust that. If you're in, you can't be out. And God is going to take care of you. And God is with you. And God is accomplishing these purposes, and they are always purposes for restoration and for growth. That's good news. This is the good news of the gospel in the book of Genesis, and it gives us every reason to hope. Okay, so we'll leave it off right there, and we'll pick up with this kind of story of Abram's being tested in his faith. That's what's coming up, okay? And then we're going to see another awesome covenant, which is going to be good. Um, but somebody pray for us, and then we'll go, we'll go home. Who wants to pray? Buddy, Greg. God, uh, we thank you for your word um, and for the teachers and gifts you've given us as a body um, to teach us about your word. I, I pray, Lord, especially for our hearts, that you would aid us to really understand and feel and believe. Um, what you said and enable us to do it. Um, and I thank you, God, for your just your incredible goodness um, throughout all of history and your plan for us and all the things you've done for us from before we were, we were ever born or ever conscious of you. Um, you are a great holy God. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.